Welcome to the Edalia podcast, hosted by Peter Kranitz and Brad Davis. Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy that help us understand its impact and explain our present situation. So good morning and welcome to the Alia podcast. This is Brad Davis. And I'm Peter Kranitz. And today Peter is going to take us on a wild tour of uh, the Lindy Man. He, he's going to describe a Twitter phenomenon to us and we're going to learn why it is that um, we strive to have a small um, but cultured audience. <laughs> for our podcasts and writing. So, so give us a little peek, Peter. So, so today we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Paul Scholas, also known as the Lindy Man and the self-proclaimed greatest living writer. Um, he is a uh, minor Twitter phenomenon. Um, uh, we actually invited him onto this show to, to speak with us and to discuss his ideas in person, but... Uh, we never really got much back on that. Paul, if you're listening, the offer still stands. We would love to have you on at any time. Um, anyways, he has he cultivates a small following of about 8,000 Twitter followers, which he frequently purges um, when it, the numbers get too high to kind of keep steady around that number. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's sick. It's it's super dope. Um, uh, his founding philosophy, he's kind of a disciple of uh, Nassim Tlaib, who I don't know a ton about. Brad, do you know more about him than I do? Uh, he started out as an options trader. I think he has a really strong statistical background. He has written a number of books now that are very highly regarded uh, in some circles for challenging uh, you know, statistical orthodoxies or the way people view markets. I actually haven't read uh, any of his books, but um, the most famous one, The Black Swan, um, and a couple others, most, most of what Talib's work is aiming towards is that we don't adequately uh, predict or make room for extreme outcomes in society and so our understanding of risk is is misguided because we don't think it's a possibility that um infrequent extreme uh events will occur and actually a great example is probably uh the coronavirus crisis it isn't the sort of thing a government or the markets plan for um and don't think are possible and, and so Talib's uh, critique is that we don't do somewhat simple things or or certainly cost effective things to try and minimize the damage of extreme risks like this sort of advocating for anti-fragility that makes sense and that seems like where the idea of the windy effect kind of springs from a sort of adjacent idea which is what scholars is mostly inspired by um and the Lindy effect, uh, something that was around before uh, Taleb started writing about it, but he kind of popularized the idea. Uh, it's the 
basically just the concept that the longer that something's around, the more likely it's going to stick around. Um, and the example that uh, Talib gives pulled from the Lindy Effect uh, Wikipedia page is that if a book is still in print after 40 years, it'll likely be in print for another 40 years. But if it's in print for 10 more years after the first 40, it'll like be in print for another 50 years. So it kind of just, the, the longer something's been around, the more likely it will be that it will continue to stick around for a longer period of time. Yeah, and um, the history of the terms sort of interesting. The first appearance, I think, was in a New Republic article that that I do encourage reading. I thought it was kind of entertaining. And I think it comes out of a discussion of comedians that um, you can sort of expect comedians or actors, if they've had a good career, the career is going to keep lasting even longer and they'll keep getting cast in things or their movies will keep getting made. And it does seem like a pretty effective heuristic for for understanding um just, under, uh, just understanding the the way that trends stick around the difference between like a fad and like an actual like phenomenon in a way but i think the one thing that you said is kind of worth uh noting you said that if like a comedian has a good career if it's a good career that's not necessarily it you know they could uh they could be terrible but if they're still getting jobs they'll still get jobs it doesn't necessarily have to do with quality i don't think it has more just to do with longevity um so it's not the you know in theory the the market will determine whether or not something's good and then it will stick around but you know uh in the case of say uh robert de niro's career you know he's been around for a long time and made a lot of really bad stuff um but he's still going to continue to stick around until he kicks it because he's been around for so long absolutely um and it makes sense if you look uh, at the history of sort of cultural artifacts or any uh, sort of ancient texts. Homer, having lasted this long through uh, burnings of various libraries, through all sorts of wars, all sorts of things, we can likely assume that the Odyssey and Iliad will still be read for thousands of years into the future. Whereas, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey... Is bordering on nearly a decade. You wouldn't uh, assume that or project that it has a probability of lasting that long. And see, the it gets interesting too when you start doing these comparisons because the Lindy effect, I don't think initially works as a comparative method, but um, the way that it is applied is as a comparative one, and in particular by scholars um, with determining whether something is Lindy or not Lindy. You know. Um, and it all depends on your on your scale too. You know, if we look at say, um, if we compare Ariana Grande to Nirvana, you know, Nirvana is Lindy and Ariana Grande is not Lindy. But if we compare Nirvana to the Beatles, uh, the Beatles are Lindy and Nirvana is not Lindy. But then if we compare the Beatles to Bach, Bach is Lindy and the Beatles are not Lindy. So it it has this sort of weird telescoping effects um, that. I don't know how useful it ultimately ends up being when you kind of get down to it in that way, uh, but it, it seems useful for individual things. Yeah, it's entirely ordinal. It's it's not cardinal. You has to be made in reference to something, and whatever the referent is is going to decide whether or not you're Lindy. Uh, so, Scalus is certainly Lindy as opposed to uh, us so far, but. I mean, we're more Lindy than 
at the newest New York Times podcast. I think it's only been around for a couple episodes. So we're more Lindy than some of the New York Times. Hell yeah, we are. Everything just matters <laughs> on what you're referring to. Um, but Scala's thing with, with using the Lindy effect is uh, basically to try to weed out what parts of modern pop culture are things that we can consider uh, will stick around or will be around longer that we should really even care about versus things that really aren't worth paying attention to. Um, so one thing that he uh, discusses is modern architecture, which is something that uh, you and I, Brad, are pretty invested in as well. Um, and he gets very irritated by the way that modern architectural spaces are not really designed for human comfort. So, you know, uh, low ceilings are not Lindy. High ceilings are Lindy. You want a big open space. Wood paneling is Lindy. Uh, whereas, like, a blank white wall is not windy. Um, things like that. Uh, similarly, windy textures is another thing that he talks about. Um, plastic is not a windy texture, uh, whereas something like metal or stone is windy. Um, linoleum, not windy. Tile, windy. <laughs> well, and he had a good tweet, uh, this week, I think, where there's this beautiful mountain overlooking uh, a fjord or a river of some sort and there's a big modern uh building uh on top of it that was interesting but i mean not as beauty beautiful as the scene was <laughs> and he he just said this building first mountains not windy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, just... it's hard to argue with that it's like a, of course not um but i i think that this brings up an interesting thing that Scholas isn't the only one who's really interested in what makes certain artifacts or how to sort of look to the past for how to live better in the present, um, which is really what the idea of that, the Lindy project would be, you know, um, other uh, relatively mainstream figures, probably larger figures than, than Scholas would be someone like uh, Bronze Age Pervert or Jordan Peterson, who similarly look to things that were resilient in past times to help uh, tell young disaffected men how to better and more effectively live in the 21st century. Um, Scholas really disavows this association and thinks that uh, there's nothing at all similar to them, partly because Scholas isn't actually trying to sell you something, though he does have self-published books available on Amazon, um, which you, if you do get blocked by Scholas and send him receipts of you buying his books, he will unblock you. Um <laughs> But the the idea of turning to the past for how to better live in the present is uh, less, sometimes often more radical than what Scholas is doing, um, and not always in a wholly uh, productive or good faith way. Yeah, that seems right to me, and. One of the interesting things about sort of the relativity of, of the Lindy effect is that Scalus ends up being less prescriptive and much more flexible than Bapp or Jordan Peterson could be. And in terms of trying to <clears throat> understand, chart a course in the future for individuals trying to figure out how to lose their disaffection 
having something that isn't so rigid as uh, 12 rules for life, having a, like... Bronze Age mindset or whatever. Really yeah. a, a, a mechanism for discernment or... or for phrenesis, uh, yeah, a, a criterion to judge things is much better and much more useful, and I think long-term helpful, than trying to follow a few rules as to what one should do or appreciate or be interested right. in. Right, it's more sort of like uh, guiding principles for how to like make yourself feel slightly happier through literal physical environmental changes, you know, like a high ceiling just makes you happier than a low ceiling. It's just like they're, it's like being outside versus being inside. Being outside is better. Like it just better for mental health. Um, the feeling of using say a, a, a wooden cutting board instead of a plastic one just feels nicer. You know, um, it, it's not, yeah. go ahead. I agree. It seems much more helpful. And, uh, Scalus isn't trying to tell you how to be happy or how to be successful. These are gradations of things that that that'll cause improvement. Try to be more happy or more successful or something better rather than aiming for an absolute good or like full attainment of something. Peterson, from my familiarity with his work, very much is trying to he has an end in mind. There's a a trajectory there's someone you're trying to be scholas is just doesn't really have a destination just some signs along the road and i i thought there's a good thread um that really cracked me up when i first read it uh where he's criticizing everyone who um tries to give you advice on being rich he, he starts out rich guys like telling you how to get rich the problem is 99 percent of you won't make it even taking this advice so i will start a, my own thread for the rest of us how to live like a slave and keep your dignity and then he goes on trying to encourage flexibility trying to be realistic in terms of what one can possibly attain and trying to figure out how to make just the best of that situation make it a little bit more positive um trying to not again not providing any sort of solutions but developing more of a mindset or a discernment mechanism for self-improvement right and this kind of brings us to his other big uh idea that he talks about the four-hour life versus the 12-hour life and that thread you're talking about is how you live in the four-hour life how do you live as uh, someone with a nine to five job um, who after your work and your daily essential tasks like making dinner, commuting, things like that, you have to pretty much only four hours of your day to yourself, your own time to pursue your hobbies, to do whatever you want um, versus uh, your boss, uh, not necessarily even your immediate boss, the manager who also is just a different degree of four hour life, but the guy who owns the company who lives what he calls the 12 hour life, um, which means that he... Uh, is able to do whatever he wants more or less. He can pursue his hobbies uh, for 12 hours of his day as opposed to your four hours. Um, and he's he's basically criticizing other people like Jordan Peterson uh, for suggesting that one could move into this 12-hour lifestyle as a four-hour lifer, that you could actually live the life of someone who's 
has 12 hours of free time while only having four hours of free time. He's basically saying, man, that's not realistic. Adjust your expectations and you'll be okay. Just don't, don't fall for thinking that you're in a different domain than you are. And you'll be so much happier if you can understand, accept what you're actually doing. Yeah, that seems like a really good practical sort of mindset to be in. Uh, realistically trying to, it, it gives people agency too. It, not being crushed by expectations that, that can't be met or, or being too pessimistic, but saying you have this bit of your life that you can carve out and use however you see fit. And so why not use it for something that'll make you happy, something that's kind of productive, something that's beneficial. Um, in the thread I was just mentioning throughout, he's talking about how uh, the four hours you have is all you get for your side projects, hobbies, or leisure. So you might as well make the best of it. Find something you can keep doing all, all your life. Make sure uh, that you're practical in terms of money you spend or the th- things you you give up to to secure your leisure but enjoy it you've got it right and enjoying it and using it in a way that isn't necessarily striving to be someone you're not not striving to be in the 12 hour space you know uh he calls these two different domains the consistency space and the payoff space the consistency space the four hour life space where you trade uh most of your day for the security of having a consistent job of having um of, of having a paycheck of having somewhere to live of knowing what your day will look like ahead of time versus the 12-hour life which is a payoff space which usually requires some sort of gamble some sort of huge financial risk that if you're lucky it pays off if you're not uh you're you're totally screwed um so kind of to accept the, the four-hour uh consistency space is a bit of a blessing um rather than as as a curse that it can sometimes seem and to learn how to use that consistency space uh that that domain in in the right way as opposed to trying to occupy a different domain yeah and this seems um large part sort of where scholars is drawing from talib and trying to understand realistic probability and the problems associated with risks I, I like this framework of four-hour life versus 12-hour life. I, I I find it granting... I It seems more optimistic to me than uh, most other sorts of things coming out of Twitter. As much as I wish uh, 12-hour life were, were uh, more readily available. I like Scott's. I, I, I like his shtick. The, the way he presents this is all, it's all real nice. Yeah, uh, he's, uh, he's he's pretty sharp, um, and a lot of what he, what sort of the windy stuff built into and connects the four hour life stuff with is um, that the the things that are truly windy, the things that that we could do to to live the to be the windy man, you know, to live that windy experience are are things that we can actually do in the four hour space. Anything that. Uh, like a self-help guru on how to get rich quick or whatever is teaching you uh, uh, payoff space stuff and you can't actually do that. That's not Lindy. That's not something that someone in the four-hour life can actually do. Um, so teaching, he, he he shows how to sort of recognize the difference between between the two domains. And rather than self-improvement, this seems a little bit more like self, self-becoming 
or or like i'd even just say self-awareness more like less than anything even yeah. mystical than that it's really just about uh being aware of where like what you're actually doing with your time and your life and how to do it it's just okay so i'm spending eight hours of my day at the office two hours cooking and two hours commuting and another eight hours sleeping like that gives me four hours of my day that's just straight up the way it is you know it's not nothing different than that you know um i feel better when i'm outdoors or when i have a high ceiling than when i am trapped in a cubicle with a low ceiling you know it's 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 just like phenomenological self-awareness yeah so the way he's using lindy here though is different there's a shift right I, is this four-hour lifestyle lindy like that that isn't persistent throughout history is it uh my instinct is no this is this is sort of the the big bone that i have to pick with with paul's conception is that um the the four-hour life is not not lindy relative to uh a, a farming lifestyle or something like that um we what Taylorism and Fordism only came about in like the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, which is sort of the the basis for our our modern office building and the way that we arrange our work and separate our day into these eight hour chunks with a a boss watching us and telling us what to do and uh, punishments for not doing it properly and uh, not living a sort of subsistence lifestyle where we uh, could farm and take care of ourselves and our own families and whatever and instead having to rely on a, a corporate benefactor to be willing to give us money for whatever relatively skilled or unskilled labor we have. That's not, that's a new thing. That's not, that's for the vast majority of human history. I don't think that anything quite like that existed. I think part of it too, with the, the four hour life thing, not being super windy is that generally we only think about sort of white collar office job things when we think about this sort of labor or when at least especially when scholars describe this sort of labor um but things like retail work that take up the vast majority of the workforce or um construction or other similar uh more quote-unquote blue-collar uh working class type jobs i think are even less windy than a white-collar modern wage slavery type thing i think it, it's it it seems like it it seems like a different domain to use Scholas's term there. I think part of it just being the the luxury, relative luxury that a four hour life office job affords you relative to a blue collar uh retail Walmart construction, whatever other job like that you want to say, I think that would shrink your four hour life down to maybe a one hour life, if that, in a lot of cases, where you don't actually have the consistency of the consistency space. You don't have that super secure income and routine that the four hour life supposedly provides you, you know? Yeah, yeah, I do think, I do think you're right. Is So the four hour life is this sort of a, so you're saying the one hour life is more emergent than the four hour life? The the yes. like okay. And what about the twelve hour life? Is is this sort of new and unique or is this pretty lindy? 
I think the 12-hour life is the most windy concept out of all of these because even back, say, in Homeric times, you know, there were there were kings and lords and other people who lived luxurious positions where they didn't really have any uh, any boss necessarily, nobody telling them what to do, and they had a very secure um, lifestyle with much more freedom and time for leisure than than other classes had. Yeah, you grew um, a pretty, really good uh, essay in a thwart this past week. What what was it? Um, you were mentioning the the sort of need for uh, writers to have, have patrons. We tend to think of uh, Virginia Woolf as being, oh, reframing it. The way you described Virginia Woolf or artists of the past seems very much in line with a 12-hour life uh, that, that create. You were kind of arguing, it seems, that creativity can only take place in the leisure of a 12-hour life. Anything less is going to be less, is going to be inferior. I think that's correct, and I think that's part of what uh, what Scholars is kind of getting at with, with the 4-hour life versus the 12-hour life, with readjusting your expectations of what you can do, you know? If you have, like, uh, in Virginia Woolf's case, so in A Room of One's Own, she talks about, you know, women writers need a room of their own. That's why there hasn't been a, a strong canon of female writers before that time, that they didn't have the physical space. But in that book, she also she doesn't just say you need physical space and time to do that. She also suggests that that can only be done, you can only have that space through having a uh, an income of some sort that you don't have to work for. And she mentions that she has an inheritance of 500 pounds a year, which is about the same as $40,000 in today's money that is given to her on yearly installments. And that's what allows her to be a writer. That's what gives her the money to be able to afford a room of her own. And so having that sort of patronage is what what the great art of the past is built upon and it is a 12-hour lifestyle you're not you're not necessarily laboring based on being able to sell your next piece of art but on being able to produce art that's what where the money's coming from Does that make sense that i answer answer your question or yeah yeah and so art that you sell is just never going to be quite as good as, as art you do in leisure I don't think that's necessarily it. I think that it's more that art that's done under the constraints of only having a limited amount of time to be able to practice it. You know, if you spend all four hours of your four-hour life doing that, you're just not going to be as good as someone who spends all 12 hours of their 12-hour life doing it. And we see this recently on Twitter. There's been a, a number of like indie pop stars who's are being outed as having rich parents, which... I think is really just like a no shit Sherlock moment, you know, of course, these people who are, have the time and leisure to practice an instrument or an art like that are going to come from wealthier backgrounds and the people who also have the connections to be able to make that work, which is sort of beside the, the 12 hour, four hour point. Um, actually, no, it's not. That's part of that comes part and parcel with the 12 hour life, having the connections to be able to get something like that produced to have your art taken seriously partly relies on having having that already established. Access to the payoff space, right there. Exactly, and other members of the payoff space. Um, so it's always surprising to me when it comes as a shock to people to see that it takes that sort of pre-established money and time to be able to be good at uh, 
in art. And I do, I don't think that it's necessary often, you know, you see, especially more so in the 20th century, mid 20th century, late 20th century than now, but artists who, the starving artist archetype where, you know, you don't have a job, you just kind of hang out with your friends and do art in some really shitty Soho loft or whatever, then suddenly Andy Warhol's there. That, that I don't think happens so much anymore with in part because the internet you know we're all being told we have to be able to sell everything we do it all has to be marketable somehow uh it can't just be for the pleasure of the arts which is a 12-hour payoff space mindset being able to do something for pleasure versus for for money yeah and so i i thank you for that explanation part of part of what i like from scholars is he seems like he pretty well explains sort of these middling trends that that are occurring in the social media space and sort of the modern art how to understand the the person who is a weekend creative versus a a layabout who who can do their art continually i i think that that is interesting and trying to figure out what the value is, how it can be constructed, whether it will last, what it can produce. There's also interesting odd tensions with this and sort of the way Scholas presents his thought or, or, or philosophy, pop philosophy, Twitter ideologies. Twitter is very much becoming sort of the vanguard of a lot of intellectual movements. I think it's where a lot of people are talking out weird ideas or presenting them or sharing them. Uh, we ran an interview um, from Alex Lee Moyer uh, discussing that interview, the TFW no GF, sort of how like these weird Twitter communities are, are booming and becoming popular and really influencing people's lives and this all these twitter personalities seem to be very much within this four hour domain it's it's not there's interesting good useful thought and thinkers like scholars but it's very much opposed to the ivory tower that we're used to cultural developments or advancements and thought coming out of. Does that seem not quite right to you? No, I think that seems right to an extent. I, I'm always hesitant to kind of embrace the, the idea that Twitter is actually democratizing anything or making anything more uh, accessible or widely available just because it seems like there's a lot more gatekeeping kind of going on almost within Twitter and social media, you know, Reddit, whatever, than there is in, in other, other spaces. And it, there's a lot of inter-community policing, no matter what that community is of people who are and are not doing it correctly. I think that there are probably some very charitable communities. Like it sounds like the, the quote unquote incel groups that, were in the TFW and OGF movie, which I didn't have the chance to see, were very supportive of each other and very um, helping to kind of expand each other's intellectual horizons. But I think for the most part, it becomes pretty 
aggressive and dogmatic pretty quickly. And to be totally frank, Scalas isn't a an open like he's he's not preaching in the agora or whatever. You know, he's carefully cultivating who he allows in. If someone insults him, if someone acts like they uh, sort of questioning the Lindy faith a little bit, he'll block them. It's not an open discussion that he has. So I don't disagree with what you're saying. I do think we undervalue the amount of gatekeeping that that occurs in your in your reference to indie music um, makes sense to this, even in sort of weird experimental art genres uh, or in things that aren't widely popular, still having resources and time behind you will make you more successful in the endeavor. And I mean, I'm sure most blue checks on Twitter come from Ivy Leagues, or I am sure there's a strong correlation between sort of class signifiers and social media success still. But that doesn't seem to be the same as people being exposed to a lot of new different stuff that they wouldn't be otherwise. And I think a good uh, sort of niche example of this is the extent to which like weird integralist stuff has popped up uh on on the catholic right and then uh we we sort of discussed aspects of this in our post-liberal episode i don't think anyone would care about that sort of thing if they weren't seeing it on twitter so certainly the the for the people leading the discussion are harvard professors and very prestigious um priests with who are well connected but the audience seems maybe there's still the same gatekeepers in terms of creators but i i don't think i think access to audience is so much more improved and audience members can find things they just couldn't otherwise i think that's fair i think that another reason why i sort of hesitate to to embrace that idea is that People are being exposed to way more, but actually knowing a lot less, I feel like. You know, it's easy to jump in on a Twitter thread that someone says something uh, provocative or something on and have no idea what the hell they're talking about, but still give a a passionate and powerful response to it. You know, Uh, I'd be, I don't know if necessarily the Catholic integralist community is the best example, but I'd be curious about a lot of these other intellectual quote-unquote intellectual Twitter th- groups, how many of the people actually read the text that they talk about or read the the articles or essays or listen to the podcasts or whatever that are under discussion or that are being uh, debated or contested or whatever. What's your evaluation of BAP? Uh, how much have you engaged with Bronze Age pervert? Uh, really very little. Uh, peripherally. Same here. Uh, just through friend of the pod nick talking about it more than anything um i I haven't really done a deep dive i haven't read bronze age mindset neither have i i and i've heard that that and some other things are are better informed than i'd expect them to be i i find it kind of appalling i mean the bar is pretty low for that though isn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well so, so i i think this gets back to creator gatekeeping it seems like even people who 
play dumb or do ridiculous things on the internet seem to have pretty good educations and seem to be pretty well read. Those with large followings, Bap, I imagine, has read a good bit of philosophy, despite his weird understanding of a lot of things. I think American Mind is a good example of this. A lot of the like pseudonymous writers they post do seem to be very thoughtful, well-read people. But the audience, um, the people who interact with their content, the second order sort of interactions seem very superficial or, or, or mis- misunderstanding. Right. And that's sort of, I guess, a problem with any sort of relatively public intellectual movement or whatever. But it, it does seem kind of exacerbated on Twitter. And then, you know, someone who's not part of that already existing discourse in an insular community kind of takes a piece of it out of context and there's a whole separate counter discourse going on about something that probably doesn't even mean what was originally intended for it to mean out of context and it 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 spins out of control very fast um and i think that there's a lot that is should be taken with a pretty big grain of salt on social media i think that scholars getting back to to, to scholars that he's interesting because he deliberately cultivates that small following and has some fairly prohibitive jargon if you don't actually know what he's talking about you know if you don't know windy effect you don't know 4hl and 12hl and all that ahead of time it looks like gibberish uh but once you kind of decipher it and figure it out you can engage with it at a pretty high level that i think is difficult to do with a lot of other other accounts and it tends to keep it pretty with relatively within the the so-called community of 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 lindy people you know yeah calling one's own followers is that's a pretty lindy move i (laughs) i really love that that's so such such a power move i love it it's incredibly impressive (laughs) yeah he he does it like every few weeks too because he's pretty popular you know he has a pretty big like a wide reach people tend to be pretty aware of him at least in certain internet sub communities and he gets up to ten thousand within a few weeks and just cuts two thousand of them that's the same with us we just uh set our follower caps to about 50 60 300 don't want to get too much bigger than that no no no. we got to keep it small we run a lean operation just like mr scholars does we it's important that we only have the best here so throwing back to our last episode where we're discussing a a few different movies and the concept of of the slacker do you think that offers some sort of solution to the 12-hour life can you sort of just reject everything give up the rat race except you won't have much of a career and try to find your leisure in in that in being a slacker or is that not the 12hl so i was actually thinking about this earlier and I don't think that that's possible anymore. I think it was more possible for that little window uh, 30 years ago when those movies were coming out that you could sort of pretty much not work, be able to afford rent and food and have the leisure time to do whatever you want in those ways and to sort of buy out of society in that way. But I think that now it just, the cost of living is too much and the the purchasing power of a dollar doesn't work that way and the hyperconnectivity of the world doesn't allow you to have the anonymity that's necessary for something like that i do know some people who 
in the climbing community who don't have homes, who don't have a traditional uh, four-hour or 12-hour life, really, and they just kind of spend all their time in vans traveling around the country and climbing rocks, which is super sick. But that's such a small minority of people. And it also is pretty precarious because I think similar to being a successful artist or anybody else in the the 12-hour 12 hour life domain area you have to have an income somehow and a lot of them don't have uh large incomes or anything like that but are able to to make do still and yeah it, it's interesting it's very interesting and I, I i wish there were other ways to enter that that 12 hour the payoff space almost without having to work for payoff It'd be so sick if something like the slacker lifestyle was still still tenable right now. Doing my best to get there, but <laughs> not quite not quite arriving. Yeah. Um anyways, uh follow Paul Scholas on Twitter at Paul Scholas. Uh follow us on Twitter if you don't already. Thanks so much for listening. We apologize to our listener for our brief hiatus there. We'll be back to an every other week publishing schedule now. Give us any feedback you might have. Meantime, stay with you. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs>